Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Manoush Shafik is the director of the London School of Economics and, and Political Science. In her new book from Princeton University Press, What Do We Owe Each Other? A New Social Contract for a Better Society, she examines why the binds, the bonds that bind society together are so frayed and, and what we can do about that to create a world that's fit for our children and grandchildren to live in. It's published by the Princeton University Press and brings Baroness Manoush Shafik to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Leonard. You begin your book by quoting William Butler Yeats's famous lines, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, surely some revelation is at hand. And you point out that the phrase, things fall apart, was quoted more times in 2016 than at any time in the previous years, even more than during the depression and the financial crisis in 2008? Yes, apparently so. And it, I think it reflects the fact that the world feels very uncertain and unstable. And we've gone through a period since 2016 of great uncertainty. But I also think a moment when a lot of things could change for the better or for the worse if we make the right choices. Uh, was it relevant that uh, 2016 was, the, was when Donald Trump became president of the United States? Well, I think actually it was a wave across the world of people like Trump and other leaders with a similar orientation, a, a sort of divided politics around the world. Boris uh, Johnson. Well, you can I can name you about 50 of them. <laughs> and and it is true that there was a rise of, you know, what are often called populist politicians. And in many ways, when I wrote this book, it was intended to be, a, I kind of called it an anti-populist manifesto, because many of these political leaders, they diagnosed the problem right. Our societies are divided, many people left behind, many people don't identify culturally and socially with prevailing norms, but their solutions were wrong. Their solutions of nationalism, xenophobia, protectionism, were not gonna solve those problems. And so I tried to identify a different set of solutions. And you've said that your interest in social contracts grew out of a desire to understand the underlying causes of the recent anger manifested in polarized politics, culture wars, conflicts over inequality and race and intergenerational tensions over climate change. Haven't studies revealed that four out of five people in China, Europe, India and the United States feel that the system isn't working for them? Absolutely. And uh, it's interesting that it is a global phenomenon. And people, uh, for the first time in most rich countries, don't believe their children will be as well off as they are. It's not so much the case in developing countries where people still feel their children will be better off. But in the US and in most other wealthy, well, in all other wealthy economies, that optimism about the future has, has disappeared. And I think it's vital that we put in place changes that restore that. Well, what's happened to the sense that there's a social safety net that will protect us? Well, it has frayed and in many countries got very thin. Part of that is as a result of technology and the rise of flexible working. In the US already about 16% of workers are on these kind of flexible contracts where they don't know if they're going, they don't know how many hours they're gonna work each week, what their income is gonna be. They have no entitlements to pensions, sick leave and holiday pay. 
And that precariousness is a huge source of anxiety. Uh, and yet another reason why the safety net feels very thin. And the pandemic appears to have hit the most vulnerable people hardest, the old, the sick, women, and those in precarious jobs. Has it simply exacerbated existing inequalities? Absolutely. I think that the pandemic revealed those fractures in our society even more. And as you say, those groups who were already vulnerable suffered the most. Women found themselves having to juggle homeschooling with trying to hold down a job. Precarious workers couldn't afford to take sick leave when they had COVID because they wouldn't get any pay. And of course, ethnic minorities were the most vulnerable to COVID because of the kinds of jobs that they did. You were born in Egypt, but you're described as a British American economist and you've taught in universities in both countries. Do you have dual citizenship? I do. I actually grew up in the American South. Hmm. How did you come to be called Manouche? <laughs> well, that's a, my parents couldn't agree on what to name me as a child. So they put two names on my birth certificates, but then didn't know what to call me. And so a friend of my mother's gave me the nickname Minouche, and it ended up sticking. You have a really impressive uh, uh, resume. Before you joined the London School of Economics, you served as vice president of the World Bank, permanent secretary of the Department of International Development, deputy managing director of the International Monetary Fund, deputy governor of the Bank of England. Uh, do your concerns with the things you write about in this book stem from what you've been dealing with over the years? Yes, because in some ways, you know, I did all those jobs and uh, many of, much of the work I did was focused on fighting poverty around the world. And we've made huge progress over the last 50 years. So many countries, the, you know, their living conditions are so much better than they were when I started work. Almost all kids are in primary school, people live longer, their children are healthier. And the big puzzle for me was, why is it that we've made all this material progress and yet people are so unhappy with their lives? And that paradox is what motivated me to write this book, What We Owe Each Other, because I realized that not just that material progress wasn't the only thing, but also the way it's distributed and shared was hugely important to whether our societies were happy or not. In your first chapter, you describe the lives of an Ecuadorian family. Would you call them a, a modern version of hunter-gatherers? Absolutely, and that experience of living with a family in the Amazon in Ecuador was a real eye-opener because you realized uh, that some people are, can still be completely cut off from the market economy as we know it. They were completely self-sufficient. They got nothing from their government and they got very little from society. The only service they had was a walkie-talkie where they could call a doctor in, another in a neighboring town where they could get medical help. But other than that, they had to feed themselves. They had no water, sanitation, transport. And many people in modern societies have the illusion that they're self-sufficient without an appreciation of how really society is everything. Everything we have is a function of what society we happen to be born in and the opportunities in our lives are a function of what that society offers us. Was there a social contract in ancient societies? How has the concept of social contract changed over the course of history from tribes to communities to nation states? 
Definitely. So the social contract in ancient societies was largely based on the family. You depended on your family to feed you, to educate you, to employ you. And if you got sick or old, they were the ones who had to take care of you. And as societies evolved, more and more of that responsibility was shared because we found that as there was a division of labor and different people had different roles to play, more of those risks were shared. So in more modern societies, many of the risks in the social contract are borne either by the market or by the state. Are certain things similar no matter where the society developed, the roles of, of men and women, the caring of children and others, education, what we expect from our employers and how we experience sickness and old age? Well, it's interesting. I think uh, there are some universal patterns, but they're changing. So in most societies, women look after children uh, and have the predominant responsibility for children. But for the first time in human history, more women go to university than men all over the world. And those increasingly educated women are in the labor market and have jobs and feel a greater conflict between looking after children and being, and being able to work. And so that huge change in our societies is part of the reason why we see conflicts over childcare, over gender roles. Uh, and, and in many societies, it has become so extreme that women have stopped having children or virtually stopped having children. Countries like Japan, Italy, Spain, Ireland, uh, birth rates have fallen so low because that, ten that fundamental tension hasn't been resolved. Whereas other countries who do a good job of providing childcare and supporting families to raise children, like the Nordic countries or France, have been able to continue to raise children and maintain their populations while enabling women to stay and work. And then there are other situations. In Afghanistan, women are worried uh, now that the uh, US is pretty much pulling out that they won't be able to go to school if the Taliban return to power. It's a huge issue, and absolutely. I, the, women have made progress in recent years in Afghanistan. The Taliban, of course, had banned them from even going to school, much less being able to work. And the consequences for them uh, could be very, very severe if, uh, if that wasn't able to, to continue. So how much of a role does religion play in the development of a social contract? Well, I think, you know, clearly different societies have different values and religion plays a part in that. Uh, and different countries make different choices about everything from what you expect from an employer to, uh, to what you'd expect from the state. And those, those values are, are a reflection of deep-rooted differences. Um, you know, I sometimes look at the difference in the vaccine rollout between the UK and the US. Uh, in the UK, we worship the National Health Service. In fact, some people call it the, the national religion. Mm -hmm. And so the National Health Service has procured all the vaccines and British people dutifully queue up, which means to line up, of course, <laughs> to get their vaccines in order of age. The US has opted for a much more market-based solution <laughs> Uh, where you can go to supermarkets and pharmacies and lots of different places and you pay and you get your vaccine. Uh, 
a very different set of values, very different set of approaches. Both have managed to achieve high vaccination rates. And so I guess what I talk about a lot in the book is I'm not ideological about, I accept that different countries have different values and will make different choices, but they have to make the choices. The current social contract isn't working and we've got to solve these problems. I must admit that when I was a student in London, I really appreciated the National Health Service. Um, I had some minor problems uh, right before I returned home and uh, it was taken care of a lot better and a lot less expensively than the final follow-up when I, when I returned to New York. And that, that really was a great relief yes, for a poor student. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that insecurity about healthcare is a huge source of anxiety in, in societies where it's not provided. And one of the things I argue for in the book is that you know, every society can afford to give everyone a minimal level of healthcare. And how much that is can obviously go up as a country gets wealthier. But it's, uh, it's something that even the poorest countries in the world should be able to afford. Well, there's some suspicion about uh, vaccines in some elements of uh, U.S. society. Is that true in England as well? Actually, what vaccine acceptance, as they call it, is among the highest anywhere in the world in the UK. I think it's about 85% of people when asked, would you take a vaccine? Would you, if you offered in a vaccine, would you take it? Accept it. So uh, that is very high. It's very low in other countries. Uh, it's a real issue. France is a good, a good example where it, less than half of people would accept a vaccine if offered. Um, the, I think the US is somewhere in between. Well, we, we don't, we're not charged for taking the vaccine in this country. That's one of the exceptions. Yes, yes. Although you can buy it, I believe. No, you can also pay. No, it. not that I know of. I, uh, it's being made available. The, the problem is sometimes being able to get it if you want it. Uh, now, there are other things that uh, have happened. For example, we talk about some of the positive effects of technologies, but some of the technologies have also brought some serious problems like climate change. And although not everyone agrees on how serious a problem that is, like Coke Industries and Senator uh, James Imhoff and uh, I don't know, a number of other Republicans uh, and people in the uh, energy industries. Uh, so how do we get past that? Yeah. Well, I must say this is, this. Uh... This is an area where the evidence is very clear uh, and pretty much 99% of the world scientists, I think, agree that climate change is an issue. The people who tend to deny it often, if I may say, have an interest in denying it. Um, so they're selling you something that has a lot of carbon in it and they don't want you to stop using it. And so you know, I guess I would be skeptical of people. And when I listen to people's arguments, often ask, where are they coming from? Um, I, I guess I'm also a little reassured that really in most countries in the world, the debate has moved on a bit on not whether there is climate change, but how we resolve it. And in the book, I do talk a little bit about some of the ways we can resolve it, including things like looking at carbon taxes and encouraging the shift toward green technologies, um, many of which I think are, are essential if we're going to leave our children a, a planet that is inhabitable. Well, you uh, just used a dirty word for many people, the word tax. <laughs> I know, I know. Part, a major part of the, of the social contract. Uh, my guest is Manush Shafiq. Uh, 
Her latest book is What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract for a Better Society. It's published by the Princeton University Press. Uh, so uh, isn't the understanding that in exchange for paying taxes, serving in the military, sitting on juries and the like, the state will deliver certain services such as defense, roads, and education? Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a misconception that most people have that what the state is about is taxing the rich and giving money to the poor, what I call the Robin Hood function. But actually, far more important than that is the role that the state plays in transmitting and transferring money across our own lives, not between people, but with across our individual lives. So most people pay tax when they're middle aged and working. And in exchange, they get an education when they're young and they get looked after when they're old. And so that what I call the piggy bank function is a lot more important. If you think of a clever child, a clever child can't go to a bank and say, I'm a clever child, please lend me money and that will pay my tuition and I'll pay you back when I have a job. It just doesn't work that way. That's what the state does for us. And so most of us pay into the state roughly as much as we get out over time. And I think it's very important to remind people that that's mainly what the state is about. It's not taking your money away and giving it to somebody else. It's taking your money away so it can give it back to you later. And also because it's taxing you because it invested in you earlier in your life, in your schooling, in the roads you used, in the electricity you consumed, and so on and so forth. So it's that intertemporal, over time, shifting of income that really matters. You say a, a new social contract is not about higher taxes or more redistribution and a bigger welfare state. So how much of the situation is a matter of, of political debate? Well, the political debate is how you do it. Uh, and there, there are many, many different views about how you do it. So I gave you the example of the National Health Service in the UK. That's how basic health care is delivered here. In Europe, they have a different system where employers contribute to insurance and then the state provides a sort of floor for everyone. You know the US system uh, better, uh, better than me, but it's, it's also, it's a very fragmented private insurance-based system. So there are many ways to do it. I guess I would argue the US system is incredibly expensive, very inefficient and highly unequal. And so I think there are better models and there's huge debate in the US about what that model would look like. I would say the same about elderly care. So some countries have the state pay to look after old people. So Italy is a good example of that. Other countries say once you're in your 40s, you have to buy insurance so that if you can't look after yourself when you're very old, the insurance will cover it. So countries like Japan and Germany do that. One is a market solution, one is a state solution. That's where the political debate is. Well, so the, the population aging means that we need to find new ways to support the elderly. Absolutely. And so one of the big things I argue in the book is that, first of all, we're getting much older, which means we probably have to work longer. <laughs> and I know that's another unpopular thing to say, but, but the truth is, in advanced economies now, people expect to spend about a third of their life in retirement. Now, the old social contract was designed for a world where you got to retirement age, you lived a few years, and then you died. 
These days that doesn't happen anymore. And so the length of time that that retirement age has gotten to has gotten very long. And the amount of time we work is not long enough to pay for those years in retirement. So I would argue that we need to link our retirement age to life expectancy. And as people live longer, they should expect to work a bit longer. People fortunately are, are living longer and healthier lives. And so those final years, those later years of life are healthy and people are capable. But we make, need to make it easy for people to work part-time as they're older and, and retrain and reskill. And, and that will make their elder, older years more interesting. Um, and then of course, when they reach the age where they really can't work any longer, society needs to provide a safety net so that no one is completely destitute in old age. Well, general, uh, generally uh, accepted retirement age is 65, although some people like me will work a lot longer than that. But um, should we be raising that, that amount? Uh, I guess the, uh, the average, uh, don't, don't, isn't 80 the year that uh, the age that most people, the average death rate? Yes, most people die in, in, in say, the U.S. In, in closer to 80. Women tend to live longer. But yes, I would say that, you know, as, as the average age at which people die increases, we should extend the age, increase the age of retirement to that age. So if people start to live one year longer, you would say you, you don't get your pension until you're 66 and so on. Or you could split the difference. You could say, you can, you know, you could do it a half a year, extend it by a half a year so that you get additional benefits of being retired and having a pension, but you also work a little bit longer to continue to contribute. I guess my real worry. Oh, yeah. sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, finish well, your thought. <laughs> my real worry is that, you know, younger generations are going to have to pay for all of us. And uh, as, as our societies age, uh, those, the number of people working, uh, they will have to pay much higher contributions and taxes if older people are retiring early. You mentioned before that uh, one of the changes is the entrance of increasingly educated women into the labor market. But in the past, weren't many of those women expected to, to not only care for the young, but also for the old for free? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think that tension is, uh, is playing out in the lives of many women all over the world uh, of how do they manage to continue to work and provide that care for the elderly and for the young. It currently manifests itself in the fact that most women do a lot more of what's called unpaid work. In fact, they do about two hours every day of more unpaid work around the world. Um, and most of that is caring responsibilities. And for many women, uh, that prevents them from continuing to work outside the home. But I guess the argument I make in the book is that by, by not organizing elderly care and care of the young better, we're missing out on all the talent of all those women being in the workplace. workplace. And you know, if you look at the US, 20 to 40% of the productivity gains in the US economy over a 50 year period simply came from the fact that women entered the labor market. And so suddenly jobs that, were, that they were excluded from, they were able to do. And, they, and people were able to get into jobs that suited them better, both men and women. And that resulted in the whole economy being more efficient. 
And so my argument is, is if we organize care of the young and the old better and provide families more support to do that well, our whole economy will be more efficient and more productive and we'll all be better off. In Denmark, you have uh, interesting charts and Denmark always seems to do very well in those uh, charts. Yes. It, in Denmark, it takes an average of, uh, of about two generations for a person to rise from lower to middle income. In the UK and the US, it's five years. And in countries such as Brazil, Colombia, and South Africa, it takes more than nine generations. So what is Denmark doing right? And do we need to develop an international social contract? Yes, very good question. So what Denmark does right is that they provide a lot of support to young children. So even children who are born into very poor families get good nutrition, good mental stimulation, early years education. So that equalizes opportunities early. They have a very egalitarian school system. So the quality of schools is pretty even. And then the other thing is that if you lose your job in Denmark, you get quite generous unemployment insurance that covers about 80% of your previous wage. And who pays for and that? The state pays for, for that. But on taxes. On, through taxes. But you then immediately get put into reskilling and retraining. And after a year, you find a new job. And if you don't find a new job, you're put in a new job. And so they have very, very high levels of worker reskilling and retraining but they also have the highest employment rates in the world. Everyone works uh, and all the women are able to stay in work because they have very good childcare. It's also no access. So people have a great sense of security that even if they lose their job, they'll find another one quickly and they'll be retrained. Um, but they also have a great sense of opportunity. So people turn over jobs readily and easily and are able to move up the social ladder more quickly. As a result, you know, they do these global surveys of happiness. They ask people on a one to 10 scale, how happy are you with your life? And year on year, come what may, Denmark is always on top of the list. So you're quite right. Den Denmark has, has figured it out. Well, in this country, some politicians think that a $15 an hour minimum wage is too generous and that extended uh, unemployment benefits will discourage people from trying to find new work. Uh, is that just politically expedient? Well, so I'm, I'm a fan of something else, which is uh, to top up the wages of people who earn low incomes. So say I'm a worker who's not very productive and my work, the amount of work I do is worth, let's just call it $8 an hour or $7 an hour. I would rather have me work for that wage and then have my wage topped up through what's called an earned income tax credit to $15, then just guarantee me a certain level. And so I wanted, I'd like to retain the incentive to work because I think work is part of the social contract. It's also why I'm not so keen on what people call a universal basic income, because I feel like that's giving up on people and saying you have nothing to contribute. So I'm keen to see work, but I'm also keen to see that there's a minimum below which no one should go, that no one should have to live at a level of, of, of poverty. And so that's how I would approach that, that issue. You note that ultra-capitalist Singapore is more socially equitable than nominally communist China, which has no mechanism for taxing the estates of the wealthy. 
Yeah, one of the things I find is that people often think that countries are monolithically, you know, free market or state dominated. But, you know, China did not have any health insurance or unemployment insurance until very recently. And Singapore is a great example because people think of Singapore as this like free market nirvana, but actually 80% of the population of Singapore lives in public housing. And not only do they live in public housing, but because it's a very ethnically diverse country, people are assigned to the housing so that every building has ethnic diversity in it. So that they don't have ghettos of Chinese people or Malay people or Indian people. So you have this mix of free market, but also a fair degree of state control in other aspects of life. And I think that is probably a more realistic way of thinking of the way societies make choices. I asked earlier if we need to develop an international social contract. Isn't Brexit intended to minimize international social contracts? Well, what I would think of as an international social contract is the question, what do we owe people in other countries? And do we owe them anything? Now, some people would say we don't owe people in other countries anything. I guess my view is actually there are a lot of, you know, the vaccine is, the COVID crisis is a really good example of that. I think it's in our interest, even if you define interest very narrowly, that countries like Brazil and India are able to cope with a pandemic. Because I think we've seen that if they can't cope with a pandemic, it shows up in our countries right away. Uh, and so I think the international social contract is what are the things that we share with other people around the world where we have an interest in managing those risks together. If we manage the risk of a pandemic together, it will actually be cheaper for the world to do it together than if each of us tries to fight the pandemic from our little national bunker. Same with climate change. Uh, you know, no one country can defeat climate change. And the cheapest way to do it is to figure out how to do it together. And I think there are, and I think that is what constitutes a global social contract. Well, in some societies, uh, doesn't the social contract rely more on families and communities for mutual support, while in others, the market and the state play a greater role? Yes, and I think for some things in life, families and communities play, uh, can work quite well. Uh, you know, in many societies, if you lose your job, your family helps you out until you find a new one. Or if you get sick and are unable to work, you rely on your family to look after you. The, the problem that most societies find is that some people are unlucky in the family that they're born into. Uh, and relying exclusively on families means that you get very uneven outcomes in society. The other thing I'd say is that modern families look different uh, and the traditional model of families looking after each other in a multi-generational household uh, doesn't exist very much anymore in most countries. Um, you know, I grew up in a multi-generational household and it's, it's, it was a, you know, an anomaly as I got older that you'd have grandparents living with grandchildren and you know, things being shared across the family. And I think we just have to realize that that is the case, that modern families look different, people get divorced, uh, people have very different family structures that they change over time. And so if we're going to support families, we need to adapt the social contract to what the reality of today is and not pretend that families look like what they did in the 1950s. 
You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I don't care to be bad. I prefer to think twice. All I know is it's quite a show, but it's still alright to be nice. Mega stores and carnivores will turn to frozen ice. When the cold days come, and the old ways fade away. My guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large is Manu Shafiq, the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. Her latest book, What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract for a Better Society, is published by the Princeton University Press. Now, um, I I wonder about uh, what we owe each other. Uh, what if, haven't philosophers disagreed? Disagreed. And it's evolved over time, and people's views about what we owe each other have have changed. You know, if you go back to the early philosophers, uh, you know, people like Rousseau and Locke and Hobbes, they basically felt that what we owed each other was that the state didn't oppress us too much. <laughs> and, you know, they had very low expectations about what we owed each other. Um, but increasingly, there was a sense that uh, if we were going to live collectively, and as capitalism evolved and you had a division of labor and people could only, you know, had to, had to take different roles in society. Um, there was a sense that in order to organize society, to deliver the things that we needed to live together, especially in cities, things like infrastructure and education, and that we owed each other more, that we had to owe each other more for these more complicated ways of living to work. And I think we're at another point in history where what we owe each other needs to be renegotiated because our societies have changed and gotten more complicated. And these big forces like the changing role of women, the impact of technology, the impact of climate change are changing uh, what our social contract needs to be. How important have the differing views of influential thinkers like William Beveridge, who was one of your predecessors as director of the London School of Economics, and Friedrich Hayek been to our, our current situation? Well, I, where, I, where I work today at the London School of Economics has been a sort of hotbed of debate about the social contract really since the beginning of when it was created in 1895. But William Beveridge uh, was the one who wrote a famous report in the night after World War II where he invented the concept of the, the modern welfare state, the creation of the National Health Service, unemployment insurance, pensions. And when he wrote that report, it was transformative. It sold more than any other government report in the UK's history. Hundreds of thousands of copies were sold. And I must tell you, if you read it, it's not a very uh, user-friendly document. <laughs> But the fact that citizens were so interested in understanding how their rights had changed as a result of this is very telling. And it had ripple effects all over the world, across Europe, across the developing world, and in the United States in terms of shaping thinking about, about what the social contract should be. But of course, there was a backlash to beverage. And there, uh, an Austrian economist called Friedrich Hayek 
who was also a professor at the LSE and won the Nobel Prize, had a huge impact on the thinking of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And Hayek thought that this state that Beveridge wanted to create was the beginnings of totalitarianism and that what we needed were, were free individuals operating in a free market. And that was the way to avoid what he called the road to serfdom, uh, the road to kind of slavery. Uh, so Hayek really is the, is the intellectual force behind the reforms that we saw in many countries in the 1980s, Thatcherism, Reaganism, which has kind of dominated thinking in recent decades. And I guess what I would argue is that, well, we had a, we had a third approach, uh, which was called the third way, which another one of my predecessors at LSE, yeah. Tony John Rawls. Invented, exactly. And he had a big impact on people like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, who tried to blend markets, you know, believing in markets, but also believing in equality. Um, I think that model lost credibility after the 2008 financial crisis, when people felt that, um, that you know, Main Street lost out to Wall Street, that the system had lost its focus on looking after everyone. You write that, I'm quoting, moments of crisis are also moments of opportunity. Well, looking around the world, I see a lot of sources of crisis today, global pandemic, wars, authoritarian regimes, hyper-partisanship, conspiracy theories. Extremists in this country have threatened the lives of politicians and, and hundreds have even tried to overthrow the government on, on January 6th. So... Yeah. Um, what what kind of opportunity are we talk about? Aren't many of those extremists <laughs> white supremacists and neo-Nazis? Are they likely to recognize our obligations to each other and to society? Mm. Well, I think those phenomena are a symptom of the crisis that we're in. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think many of the many of those phenomena reflect the fact that people feel they're, they feel no longer connected to their societies and they feel that they no longer have a place or a future in their societies and they're sort of fighting for a different model. Um, I think at the more extreme end, they are a minority. And I think there are a lot of people who, uh, who could be persuaded with a different social contract that offered them both greater security and opportunity. And I think that's what we've lost and those, all those crises that you identify, I think are caused by the fact that people feel insecure and that they don't get a fair shake and a fair chance in society. And so, so much of what I describe in the book is how do we give people that security? How do we know that there's, you know, you won't be left destitute. If you lose your job, you'll be looked after. And if you get really old or sick, you'll be looked after. But on the flip side, a sense of opportunity that you'll be expected to contribute to society. And if you contribute, you will be able to improve your lot. And it sounds so simple when I say it that way, but there's a very complicated set of policies that have to be implemented to create that. I guess my premise is that a lot of people who feel disaffected today if offered that deal, would take it. Because what they're protesting about is what the current deal in our society offers them. And of course, there are people who are extremists and racist and bigoted and sexist and you know probably are not persuadable. 
but I think there are a lot of people who are, and my hope is that this book persuades some of them. Well, it's not only the extremists. Uh, last week, the Biden administration revealed what it called the American Families Plan, which is a $1.8 trillion spending and tax proposal that puts hundreds of billions of dollars toward childcare, paid family and medical leave, tuition-free community college, and a slew of other initiatives. But pretty much all of the Republican politicians, anyway, maybe not all the Republicans in this country, are opposing any additional large spending measures, and they're balking at proposed tax increases. Taxes become a big issue when we're discussing the social contract. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's interesting. I was really struck how much of uh, the American Families Plan um, looks like some of the recommendations in my book. <laughs> I was rather pleased, actually. <laughs> you well, know, maybe they've been. Family. Maybe Joe Biden and his people have been reading you. <laughs> well, they might. I wonder. I do wonder. Um, but and I think you know, I think it's very good that they propose how to finance these these expenditures. But I also think that if done right, some of them will pay for themselves. Um, and I, you know, I don't say that casually, but if you can help American women stay in the labor market and they will be able to then continue to work and pay taxes. If you can uh, really make community college free and help people get into better jobs. Uh, and if you can keep people working rather than be unemployed and provide top-ups to their wages so that they have an incentive to stay and work, all of those things will increase productivity in the US economy. And you know, the, big, the best way to raise revenue for a government is to have your economy growing because then you don't have to raise taxes to raise revenue. They just The economy's growing, the pie is growing, your share of it grows. And that's the that's the upside scenario here. And I think you know the U.S. economy has not seen great productivity in recent decades. I think a lot of that is because the economy has become exclusive and anti-competitive. And I think you know revitalizing competition, having a more inclusive economy, will make it grow faster. So you know, and it I doesn't think, matter whether the whether the people in charge are Democrats or Republicans. You know, they have to. They make their political choices. Um, I think what I think what does matter is the policies they implement, and I think that a lot of the American Families Plan will will actually increase growth in the long run. It will cost now, but it will increase growth in the long run. And you know, let's be honest. Corporate taxes in the U.S. have come down very, very much in recent decades. In fact, it's true in every country in the world that corporate taxes have come down. Part of the problem, let's face it, is because corporations, the big ones, are able to avoid paying any tax because they move their profits around to tax havens around the world. And so I think the plan that the administration has to shut down those tax haven options to make people pay tax in the country where they're actually economically active and to put a floor on corporate taxes will help hugely. And let's face it, the companies that can take advantage of those tax havens are big and global. A local firm only operating in the US is at a disadvantage and ends up paying a higher tax rate. That's just not fair. That's what I mean about the economy becoming less fair in terms of competition. And so some of these things 
are about fairness, really. And I mean, can I say one more thing about the tax issue? The of effective course. corporate tax rate in the US is actually very low. So the headline number looks very big, but then there are all these deductions that you can. So the effective corporate tax rate, uh, as estimated by uh, a professor at MIT, Dan Asmaglu, is about roughly 5%. The effective tax rate on labor is about 25%. Once you pay social security and all the other things that you have to pay on top of that. And it's so been it's pointed out that the, uh, the, the wealthiest 400 people in the United States pay taxes at a lower rate than the average exactly. working person. Exactly, exactly. And again, it's just not fair that, uh, that higher income people are paying lower tax rates. And so, uh, you know, I do think, and you know, if you look at their tax proposals of the administration, they are very progressive and they are focused on making the wealthy pay a higher share. Wealthy have had a really good run in recent decades, especially given what's happened to the stock market and to house prices. And we've just been through a major crisis. And so I think it's fair that, you know, the biggest shoulders should carry more of the burden. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Manoush Shafiq, director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And her latest book is What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract for a Better Society, which is published by the Princeton University Press. Um, you were talking about taxing. Uh, is it clear why the costs of parental leave are usually borne by employers? Wouldn't funding it through general taxation create a more level playing field for men and women in the labor market and be less of a burden for firms, especially the smaller ones? Yes, and I think actually, you know, while I say that I think corporate taxes can can go up, there are some things that are currently paid for by corporations or by companies that I think would be more fairly paid for by society more generally. So parental leave is a really good example where sometimes firms have to pay the cost of, of someone taking maternity leave, for example. Well, that doesn't seem fair because of course it's not equal treatment between men and women. It's also uh, a big burden for smaller firms. And so paying having parental leave be paid for by society through general taxation would seem a more sensible approach. Another really good example is training. So these days, people change that who they work for much more often than in the past. And as a result, firms have very little incentive to train their workers because they might turnover very frequently. You know, when I was growing up, you thought, oh, well, you probably worked for about three organizations in your lifetime. Now people work for three organizations in a week. And neither, none of those organizations have any interest in spending money on your training. And so I think the cost of reskilling workers might, again, come off the, off the burden, of, remove that burden from companies, have that be paid, again, through general taxation, and pay companies to train workers at a rate that might be more than they might do otherwise. That would be good for the workers, good for productivity, uh, and ultimately good for all, for the private sector as a whole. Do we invest enough in the health of, uh, of young children? Aren't the first 1,000 days of life the most important for brain development? Uh, are we doing anything to aid uh, in that? 
Well, not enough. And the payoff from investing in young children is very high. You know, we traditionally thought that families are responsible for young children and society had no stake in that. But the consequences of those first thousand days are so huge. There was a very interesting study done in Chicago where uh, young children participated in, uh, you know, this is pre three-year-old before school, participated in programs where they were supported around nutrition and mental stimulation. And the parents were taught what kind of play was really good for, for brain development. Those kids in Chicago, in deprived, in deprived parts of Chicago, after 20, 30 years, earned more, were better educated, were more likely to have health insurance, were less likely to have committed a crime. And the benefits of those very low cost programs like Head Start, for example, uh, are so huge afterwards for society. And it's much cheaper for society to make those investments early than have to pay the cost of prison time, welfare payments, uh, and unemployment insurance if those kids grow up without those that support early in their life. And it's being addressed in other places as well. In Jamaica, don't young children that are visited just once a week by a community health worker earn 42% more 20 years later than children who didn't get similar support? Absolutely. And that's a really great example of how powerful just a very small intervention in the early years can have big payoffs for society. The other thing is that if you don't do that, no matter how good a school you send those children to, they never catch up. If they haven't had good nutrition and good mental and physical engagement when they're, when they're infants, you can send them to the best schools in the world and they won't benefit from them. And so, again, those early years are, I think, the highest return investment society can make. You write that a welfare state doesn't exist only to redistribute wealth as critics of democratic socialism charge, but instead to serve as a kind of a piggy bank that helps mitigate challenges as they arise, because no one knows when they'll get sick or how long they'll be able to work, which leads to a system where the young and old pay less into it than those uh, in their most productive years. Uh, it's, it's, it's an, an inequitable situation, isn't it? It is, it is. And, uh, and I think uh, reminding people that we owe each other more and that if we pool our risks and pool our resources, we'll all be better off is, uh, is part of the reason I wrote the book is people uh, have gotten into this kind of me, I'm on my own, I have to look after myself. Whereas actually, if we think more about we than me, and if we think about actually, if we pool our risks around things like old age or ill health uh, or, or reskilling, uh, we would all be better off. We have just a couple of minutes left on this show. Um, have I left anything out? Are there other things that you think are really important to discuss in the in the, the few minutes of remaining time? Well, I think, you know, I think in the United States in particular, there is a, obviously a huge need to bring society together again. And uh, I guess what I would hope is that at this moment after the pandemic, maybe it is a bit of an opportunity for politics to change a little bit. Uh, when people have, have felt 
a time when when they've been deprived of human contact, when uh, they've seen the benefits of solidarity and people and how individuals behaving responsibly are is so critical for all of us being better off. I think there is an opportunity for all of us in our lives and in the way we vote and in the way we engage as citizens to define this new social contract. Um, and I think nowhere more than the United States is it needed, but also the US has always been a, a beacon and a model for the rest of the world. And if the US can define a new social contract over the years ahead that give Americans a sense of security, but also restoring that sense of opportunity, which was the foundation of the American dream. If that can happen, it could transform not just the United States, but the whole world. But are we moving in an opposite direction? Uh, the governors of uh, any number of states that have just ignored all of the, uh, the warnings about the pandemic uh, don't seem to be in any danger of not being reelected. So there seem to be well, all these other factors well, I would wait and see whether they get reelected. And do you think that the same thing will happen in India and, and in Brazil, considering want, the yeah, well, total I disasters there? I would, I would wait and see whether they get reelected. I think um, we've done some very interesting research at LSE, which looked at what makes people reelect a politician. And most politicians, you know the cliche, right? They, people vote their pocketbook mm. and it's the economy, stupid, right? Well. And so politicians have the illusion that if like GDP goes up during my tenure, I'll get reelected. Actually, what our research shows is what determines whether you reelect a politician is whether your well-being improves. And that well-being is defined as your physical and mental health, your sense of community and the quality of your relationships, and whether you have meaningful work. And if your well-being goes up, you reelect the politician, regardless of what happens to GDP. And, and we have to leave it there, unfortunately. Okay, well, so it's hope, let's hope for well-being. <laughs> and thank you so much, uh, Minou Shafiq, Director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, her latest book, What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract for a Better Society, is published by the Princeton University Press. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. It's been, the pleasure has been mine. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on Spotify, Apple, and any everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to comment on any of our shows or if you just want to say hello, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support WBAI. We are engaged in a kind of a social contract as well, and we're asking all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the kind of unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. on this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's completely listener-sponsored. So please make that call right now in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large so we can continue to bring you these unique long-form interviews that you 
just won't find anywhere else. Again, the number to call, 212-209-2950. That's 209-2950. Or you can go to give to WBAI.org on the web. And to everyone who's already stepped up to support this program during this terrible pandemic, thank you. We hope you'll join us for tomorrow's show when senior fellow at Stanford University's Institute for International Studies, Dr. Martha Crenshaw, will discuss the growing domestic terrorism threat in America. We'll see you then.